So we're in the book of Acts, and last week we started chapter 27, and uh, Paul is being sailed to Rome because he uh, gave up, <clears throat> he was uh, arrested, claimed Roman uh, citizenship, and appealed to the emperor, and so uh, Felix and Festus both couldn't find anything to hold hold him for, but since he had appealed to Rome, they had to do something with him. So they strapped him to a centurion and sent him off. And I'm going to pick it up 27.9. We actually read this last time, but it gives you a uh, run into where we are now. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Okay, so the fast being over is obviously Yom Kippur. So they are in the fall, and it is my understanding that fall and winter uh, storms on the Mediterranean are fairly severe, and, and when the technology that you've got are, are small sailing ships, it's dangerous to try and cross at that time. Yes? Yeah, he... He's obviously speaking prophetically, and as we get farther in, he will in fact have a vision, and he will use that vision as the basis for uh, <laughs> basically taking over the party. Right now, they don't, he doesn't have a track record, so, you know, right now he's just a prisoner with a centurion and says it's too late, and I perceive that we're going to, you know, I mean, You've got the ship captain who says we can make it and the centurion who wants to go. And between the two of them, they basically don't pay any attention to it. If nothing else, you could imagine that he has a motive for not wanting to go. So verse 11 now. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So, to the western end of Crete, okay, they are right now on the eastern end, and you can see from the map up here behind me, but I suspect that they're here on the eastern, or, yeah, on the eastern end of Crete, and they're trying to get probably somewhere around here where there's a better port so that they can spend the winter. So again, verse 12. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing south, west, and northwest, and spend the winter there. So as I say, they're just basically trying to scoot down the island. And if you notice on the, the scale on the map here, uh, Crete looks like it's basically 100 miles long, maybe a little farther. So I'm imagining they're probably trying to move the ship 50 or 60 miles uh, to get it to a place where more congenial to spending the winter. So now verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchored and anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So they've got a fair wind, 
no storm, short trip. So they, they put out to sea uh, thinking that the weather is nice and, and they're going to be able to make this short run down the, uh, across the island and get to a better harbor. 14. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. As they're sailing along what they are thinking is the lee side of the island, which is the south side of the island, a storm comes in from the uh, northeast and basically blows them out away from the island and into the open sea. It is so fierce that they're not able to tack against it. Everybody understand tacking and all that kind of stuff? Verse 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to, to secure the ship's boat. So what they're going to do is the sailing ship has got a basically a dinghy, a little rowboat that's towed behind them. So they're going to get that up into the onto the main ship to avoid losing it. And then they're going to put out some sea anchors. So again, 16. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to, sh to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Okay, obviously they're lightening the ship, uh, getting as much cargo and stuff out of there as possible. And again, for the sailors, all that stuff is their livelihood. In other words, when you set off with a ship, you don't get paid if you don't deliver the cargo. So for those guys to voluntarily start throwing that stuff overboard is an indicator of just how severe the storm is. Where they're going to wind up is over here, but basically there's nothing significant in the med between Crete and Malta. So, and again, looking at the scale, uh, you're probably talking five or 600 miles. They're going to be in the grip of this storm for two weeks. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. That really good advice right now. I mean, I, I can just see people rolling their eyes as he says something like that. Verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood beside me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be, that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. Notice a couple of things. Obviously, Paul is saying, I told you so. And he's now saying, I'm going to tell you again. 
And I've got this, got it on the authority of an angel this time. So that's, you remember uh, the book of Jonah when they're trying to figure out what the cause of the storm is? And they, and Jonah's down in the hole sound asleep and they grab him and jerk him up and take him up and says, who are you? What are your people? What are you doing? And he says, this is all my fault. Uh, the God whom I worship is doing this and just chuck me overboard and all this will stop because this is really all about me, not about you. You're just sort of caught in the middle. Well, Paul is sort of saying the same thing. This is all about me. We're going to make it. We're going to get to Italy because God says, I need to go to Italy. Y'all can tag along. I mean, that's pretty much the message. I don't know, just speaking in a human way now, if Paul had first said to me, I'm the ship captain or I'm one of the passengers on the ship or whatever, oh, it's too late, we shouldn't be sailing now. Well, that's something that everybody who lives on the Mediterranean knows, is that sailing right now is kind of marginal. So for Paul to say, oh, we shouldn't sail right now, and for them, two, day, two weeks later, for him to say, I told you so, I don't know that I would take that as confirmation of much of anything. Am I saying it so makes sense to you? So, you're one of the passengers on the ship. I, I would not take Paul saying, I told you so, as confirmation of much of anything. Yeah, in, in other words, everybody that lives on the Mediterranean understands the weather patterns, understands that this time of year it's kind of iffy whether or not you should sail. So for somebody to say, oh, we shouldn't sail, and then you get caught in a storm, I, as just a, a regular passenger, would not take that as particularly prophetic. And so now he's going to say, I have had an angel speak to me. And so the question becomes, why do you take him seriously now? One of the things that happens with prophets in the Bible is they typically give short-range prophecies, stuff that can be confirmed, and then as they establish their, their bona fides as a prophet, then they'll start going longer and prophesying about bigger things. But most of them start off with something that can be verified, you know, don't go up there until you hear them marching in the balsam kind of thing. You know, it, oh, okay, wow. And we just did that, what you said, and we won the battle. And Okay, cool, you got some credibility. You, you understand what I'm saying? For Paul to have said, ooh, bad idea to sail right now, I don't think is of a character that would have gotten him any special credibility. That's, that's an excellent point. I absolutely agree. The comment was that Everything right now is going to heck in a handbasket, and somebody is going to stand up there and give you hope. You might just as well cling to that because you got nothing else to cling to. I, I, I absolutely agree with that. That's that's a good comment. When the 14th night came, so this storm is two weeks worth of storm that they have been driven along by. The other thing is it says uh, back in 21, since they had been without food for a long time, don't know what's going on there. I suspect some of it is seasickness. In, in other words, if you've got, yeah, if you've got people that are not used to sailing 
uh, and you put them in a very small boat in a very big storm, I can see why appetite wouldn't be too, too keen. Now, I don't know if there was anything else going on. I mean, they may have uh, been fasting or and praying, you know, that kind of thing. That's also possible, but it doesn't say that. So 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. 20 fathoms is 120 feet. Okay, Fathom is 6 feet, for, again. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might hit run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and play, and prayed for day to come. Now these were probably sea anchors. I don't know that they would have been bottom anchors, although they might have been. Uh, but uh, you all know what a sea anchor is? Uh, a sea anchor is usually made out of cloth or something like that, and it's got a, a hoop basket, and like it's almost like a parachute. And what you do is you drag them out behind the ship and they provide drag and orient the ship uh, to the wind so that you're not out of control and wallowing all over the place. So a sea anchor is very often used in a storm like this to keep you oriented and so forth so that you don't turn broadside to the waves. And if you turn broadside to the waves, you're really in trouble. So you want to stay bow on or stern on to the waves. They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the boat, ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship and the boat and let it go. So the, the sailors are going to use uh, the ship's dinghy to get out of there before the ship itself hits the rocks and breaks up. That's that's the goal. And of course Paul uh, puts a kibosh on that and the soldiers make sure that the, they, they let the dinghy go and it lost in the storm. 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day to have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. For not a hair is to, be, is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. There were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. A ship needs ballast. What you do is you load heavy stuff low so the ship settles into the water and doesn't roll on you so much. But the less stuff you have in there, the higher you float. And I am guessing, not being a sailor myself, that as they are coming into rocks, they want to ride as high as they can. Notice that they do have food. So everybody had something to eat. And there are two translations. some of your Bibles will have 276 persons on board, and some other Bibles will have 76 persons on board, depending on, and the differences in the Greek manuscript, depending on what, what manuscript tradition your Bible comes from. And you all have seen these old sailing ships, right? They're tiny. 
So the people on there are going to be sardines and packed in there tight because these are very small ships. So verse 39, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudder. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. So the ship, as Paul prophesied earlier on, the ship is lost, uh, it gets broken up on the reef and, and disappears, but uh, everybody on the ship makes it to shore. So chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Remember, this is late fall going on to winter. So I suspect it was pretty miserable. So verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. A couple of things about this. Thing one is you've all heard of snake handlers. Uh, in the Great Commission at the end of Mark, Mark uh, chapter 16, starting in verse 14. Afterwards he, Yeshua, appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go all, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So, if you are of the snake-handling variety, and there are sects of Christianity that, as part of, I don't know whether you would call it a liturgy, uh, but as part of their practice, handle snakes. They get, get it from here, and they get it from this passage in Acts. Because Yeshua says, you can pick up serpents with your hands and they won't bother you. And here's Paul, who is an apostle, and a snake bites him, and he just flips it off into the fire and goes on ignoring the whole thing. So when you run across snake handlers, they are biblically sound. 
do with that whatever you want. The other thing that's going on here, these are pagans, okay? These are not Jews or Christians. And because they are willing to uh, entertain the idea that Paul is a god, based on the fact that he has just been bitten by a viper, which would otherwise be very detrimental to his health, and it just ignores the whole thing. And they're all sitting around on a log watching this guy, you know, waiting for him to keel over, right? And he doesn't. Now, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is pagans are not stupid. And God has organized his universe around his iron law of sowing and reaping. As somebody once said, the, the, the mills of heaven grind slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And pagans are not stupid. So the idea that God's universe will exact justice eventually is something that is not at all foreign to them. Uh, in the East, it's called karma. Uh, there are various words for it in different places, but these people have figured out how God's universe works. They don't know the name of God. They worship pagan gods, but their, their understanding of how his universe works is perfectly sound. So the idea here that this guy has come up on a shipwreck, he's got a centurion with him, he must be a murderer. And he should have died in the sea, but he didn't, so... God is rectifying that right now with this snake. And then when that doesn't happen, of course, as I say, they turn to the next option. Well, maybe he's a god. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Now, stop for a minute. I have no idea how big a place Publius has or what kind of resources he has. But going back now to the number of people on the ship, if you have 276 hungry people descend on you all at once, entertaining them graciously for three days is going to be expensive. And you might take that as evidence that perhaps the 76 number is correct. That's just a thought. I have no reason to prefer one translation over the other. Yeah. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, the comment was perhaps Publius was among those who were entertaining the notion that Paul was a god, and currying favor with the gods is a good thing. It could be entirely correct. Verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So, <laughs> I have no doubt that Paul tried to disabuse him of the idea that he was a god. I, I, I'm not suggesting that Paul in any way played on uh, the idea that they thought he was a god. But Paul isn't helping things in it because everybody thinks he's a god and he goes around laying hands on people and healing them. And yeah, sure, yeah, no, mm -hmm, you're not a god. Uh huh, right, you know. So, <laughs> as I say, it doesn't say what Paul's side of the conversation was. 
And I have no doubt whatsoever that Paul tried to disabuse him of the idea he was a god. I'm, I'm not in any way suggesting that Paul is uh, playing on that. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting it in a, uh, the twin gods are Castor and Pollux. They have a constellation named after them. They're really famous. They were also demigods. You know, the carved thing on the front of the ship that you see on the old sailing ships, that would have been Castor and Pollux, the twins. So verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. Syracuse here is on the southeastern tip of Sicily. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at uh, Phrygium. And after one day, a south wind sprung up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Puteoli is modern-day Naples. Verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier that guarded him. I have no idea where the three taverns is. <laughs> Can't help you there. Verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. They said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers among none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Yeshua, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit is right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. So Paul has been talking and arguing all day. You got some that believe and some that don't. So Paul's sort of parting shot at them as they are going out the door is the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And of course, this is from Isaiah chapter 6, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this 
salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Yeshua Messiah with all boldness and without hindrance. There in the book.